Bookstripe presents Original Fairy Tales. Hi everyone, this is Original Fairy Tales in which I dive deep into times past and together with my worldwide army of gnomes, try to dig up where the stories we all know and love came from. My name is Martin and if you have a particular fairy tale you'd like to know more about, then why not email us at ebookstripe at gmail.com or use Twitter at ebookstripe. Also, if you have a product, business or website that can benefit from exposure, then why not consider putting up an ad on the podcast? At a fraction of the cost of normal advertising, you will get a long-lasting reach out to the audience every time someone listens to an episode. For more information on this, feel free to email us at ebookstripe at gmail. Com. Now, when I was young I was raised on fairy tales, but they weren't the Disney ones we all know and love. What I got were weird stories about a spider stealing pastries and a man walking along a beach finding nothing but his own footsteps in the sand in front of him. And those bedtime stories always kind of stuck with me. When I got to borrow books from the local library, I learned that many of the fairy tales I loved had been done by Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm. It was around the age of 10 that I found that this wasn't actually true. Though Anderson did write a couple of original fairy tales, the stories the Grimm's had published had been collected from all over Europe. It was then that I became fascinated by the origins of fairy tales, myths and fables that were told to entertain, scare and instill morality. So, a few years back when Disney made a musical movie adaptation of The Little Mermaid, I dove back into the original works, believing that it was the handiwork of Hans Christian Andersen, published in 1837. But what I found was that stories quite like his went back to the Roman era. In those days, someone who could tell a good story could find themselves in food and drink for quite some time in a local tavern, as they were the TV of their time. Owners of bars even paid storytellers to draw a crowd to their place, as the good ones had a very recognizable style. If you look at the collective works of many writers we know today, you will find they used their own style over and over again. But within the stories of Anderson, and especially with The Little Mermaid, I found it totally mismatched his normal short and light-hearted stories, which always had a happy end and a positive morale to look on the bright side of things. Stories like Thumbelina, a story about not fretting and about being smaller than the rest, or The Ugly Duckling, in which the duckling turns into a swan at the end, are great examples of his work. Now, stories of mermaids and selkies had been around for the longest time, just over the southern and southwestern border from where Anderson lived. Selkies are a Celtic version of mermaids, basically being were-seals that can turn into human form when they shed their skin and get trapped in the human form if they happen to lose the skin in the process. These stories were often quite grim and dark, not like Anders' style at all, but they were quite like the style of the Little Mermaid. And though it is true that as a writer grows and experiences things, the style can change, to me it is more likely that he adapted a story he had heard for his own gains. As he became more famed and expectation grew for new stories, I believe he started looking outside his own personal experiences and drew on the outside inspiration to write. And so this is not about Anderson's version of The Little Mermaid, as it is my goal to go back in time as far as I can go for the originals of fairy tales 
and see if their morals and values still hold up today. Or possibly if there's something to learn from something that was lost. So here is the oldest story I found. There is a selkie girl who has everything she wants but is forbidden to leave her home as her father warns her many times of the dangers that lie outside their safe little world. Among them, he says, is the dangerous world of the humans. Still curious, the girl now and then escapes her father's watchful eye and goes to spy on the humans. When she sees a ship being caught in a storm, she pulls a drowning sailor to safety on the beach and stays with him to keep him warm throughout the night. When she gets back to her father, he has found her missing and she confesses what she has done. He is furious and believing she is now tainted, he casts her out by taking away her seal skin. As without the skin the water is too cold to bear, the girl has no other option than to swim to shore to the beach where she had left the sailor. When she gets there, the sailor is already gone. There is a path though. And so carefully and hesitantly, keeping her eye on the sea, she follows him. On the path she meets a group of people doing laundry in a stream. As she approaches, the people scream and yell at her. Not understanding the language, the girl doesn't get what the commotion is about, but from the gestures she finally understands that the people have a problem with her not being in her skin. Feeling ashamed about it, she steals a human cloth skin that's left out to dry and moves on, alone and afraid of this strange land with such strange customs. Next, she comes to a house where, as luck would have it, the fisherman opens the door. He is thankful for her saving him, but as she approaches, he backs away, showing his wife and his children are inside. Understanding that the man is already taken, and knowing nobody else here, the girl goes back to the beach, where she sits on a rock, waiting for her father to forgive her. And the next morning, she was gone. Now, looking at this from a cultural context, there are several differences between now and life then. For one, people had more children, but also more died due to diseases of cold. And the surviving children were much more involved in family life to either work or raise income to support the family. There were also a pension plan to take care of the parents when they grew too old to work. Back in those days, for the richer people, marriage was a way for the families to unite property, such as lands and livestock, to survive and thrive as a group. Concepts as love, or even happiness for the ones who were going to be married was less to not important. Having a virgin daughter was the best way to see her married to someone with a decent status and increase family's riches, given that sexually transmitted diseases were also around in those days. And though people didn't quite know what an STD was back then, they weren't stupid and they did know it was not a good thing when things started to smell droop or pitch. So, when a girl from a rich family was found to have lain with a man, it was often covered up. Even a rumor or suspicion of a girl of high standing, not being pure, was enough to make it harder for the girl to be married off to someone worthwhile. 
and some fathers took this to extremes. So this story is not only a warning for young girls not to stray and have their reputation destroyed, it is also a warning for parents not to go overboard in their punishments. And in the end, do we really know what happened to the mermaid girl? No, we actually don't. We know she was gone, though in the Hans Christian Andersen version, she sits on a rock overlooking the ocean for a long long time until the sea foam captures her, indicating her death. There is even a bronze statue of her at the Langley in Copenhagen portraying that. But in this original, it is possible that her father forgave her and gave her back her skin, while in the other versions he didn't, and in desperation she went back into the water and drowned, which basically is a beautiful and poetic ending for a once mermaid. But as selkies in human form were known to be able to hold their breath underwater for a long time, I like to go for the first option, as I prefer to believe in forgiveness. In my eyes the original story holds up to modern times quite well. Children, and not just girls, should be made aware of the dangers of the outside world, and parents shouldn't go all apeshit on them if something happened. In the end it's the child's welfare that is really important and not just reputation or family status. Do you agree? And if not, why not? Twitter me as I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, when I'll be tackling... No, I shouldn't say. So I might be lying.